Welcome to the Bible Studies for Life adult podcast. This podcast is hosted each week by Chris Johnson and myself, Lynn Pryor. And Chris, today we're going to be discussing the temptation to place something else before God. So this is our uh, fourth session in this study. We've looked uh, over the past couple of weeks at the first two temptations that Jesus faced in that season where he has gone um, into the wilderness and at the end of a, of a period of 40 days uh, fasting and praying, he, he encounters uh, temptation. So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, two of the ways that Satan tempted Jesus. And today we're going to look at that third way. Uh, we uh, are grateful to have uh, Juan Sanchez with us. Juan, thank you for writing the study and for being a participant in our podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. If you were not with us for that uh, podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Sanchez is the senior pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. He's also an associate professor of theology at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. So he comes to this with some great experience and some great background uh, to talk about this study. So thank you, Juan. Yeah. And as we look at this idea that uh, of this idea of um the greatest joy comes from when we exalt God. We were going to see that Jesus was tempted, uh, this third temptation, he was tempted to exalt himself, but in a way that was not right. And Jesus certainly deserves our praise and exaltation, but he would not seek it in a way that was outside his father's plan. This is probably one of those studies uh, that has the opportunity to connect at a lot of different levels uh, because uh, we see people um, exalting themselves, themselves, uh, we are tempted to do that as well. So let's talk about some ways that that happens um, in our culture. Two simple words: social <laughs> media. Yeah, it you know it's it's fascinating how social media is affecting. We're we're starting to see a lot of research and a lot of data and, and to the effects of social media on the brain and relationships and even even young children. So I'm very thankful to see that. Uh, but what's fascinating to me, um, just from an anecdotal perspective, what, I, what I've observed is that social media removes filters that we would normally have when we're face-to-face -face with people. And it, for some reason, allows us to say things we would never say to someone face-to-face. And so, you know, one of the ways that we exalt ourselves is by putting people down. And, you know, we see these in on, on one platform that I'm that I'm aware of in social media is just the way that professing Christians even talk to one another or about one another is uh, ungodly. And then I think of another social media platform. Um, and I've learned just from from personal experience, some people that I know, it's it's like they have a uh, they have a Facebook life but then they have a real life and they're not very similar, but their Facebook life, they're perfect. Their children are perfect. And they're presenting themselves in such a way that it just, um, it, it's just really trying to get people to, to see them in an exalted way, if you will. I'm surprised that people, people, how they use, uh, how they're always taking pictures of them, of themselves. <laughs> uh, I think what you just described is really interesting that, that, that they're, we've removed some filters and people are, are now doing things and saying things that they maybe wouldn't have done in the time past. But my fear is that, that, uh, that people 
carry that over. So when they remove those filters because of social media, then they begin to do it in their interpersonal uh, and face-to-face conversations as well. That's exactly right. You know, that's exactly right. And it, it's so funny, even the language used, like a selfie, you know, uh, it just points <laughs> to us. You know, I think the Brits called them ussies. Uh, it's just it's just fast. It's just continually pointing to ourselves. And what I find fascinating with that, too, is people are setting out to go, I think I'm going to exalt myself. But we don't no. put the pictures of our house that looks awful. The the toys everywhere, <laughs> the pit, the unmade beds. We don't uh, that those selfies aren't uh you know, the, the hair's unkempt that we haven't combed our hair or shaved and you know we just look awful we don't put those pictures up we put the the, the good pictures we notice this my my family and i uh we have a, a tradition every christmas we send a very unusual christmas card this past year was our 20th year to do this but what launched it was getting newsletter chris those christmas newsletters that people send <laughs> <laughs> that the kids are just the most phenomenal kids and every and this by the way this was before facebook everything was so great so we actually set out 20 plus years ago to make fun of these but we realized real quick you can't say anything without sounding like you're bragging and you just can't so i realize these people aren't doing it to brag they're just wanting to tell what happened in their life but they're not going to put in their christmas newsletter the 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 the, the time their house flooded or the, the, the toilet overflowed or break, dinner was ruined or their kids acted up. We don't tell those things. We only put our good face forward. And whether we intend it or not, there's a little bit of self-exaltation in that. And we're going to see in this that Jesus was tempted to do that. And again, he is worthy of our worship and praise. But he is determined he is going to receive that in the right way. So let's look at Matthew 4. Let's come back to Matthew 4 as we've done the last two sessions. Uh, we're going to look now at the third temptation uh, of Jesus. This is in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. It's interesting that um, Satan just straight up uh, invites Jesus to bow before him, to worship him. That comes to, as somewhat a surprise to me that it's just that blatant. Yeah, and what, what Satan is doing is offering you know, something to Jesus that is a real temptation in one way, but it's already promised to Jesus by the Father. And, you know, just to give a, a little bit of, of context, and I'm sure you probably have already uh, heard this, it doesn't help to just remind ourselves. What Jesus is actually doing is he's retracing the steps of Israel in their wilderness wandering, all the times that they tested God. And what one of the interesting things about this passage is that every, every scripture quotation that Jesus spits back at Satan is from Deuteronomy, you know, so, so Israel in their wilderness wondering when, when they were testing God uh, and not believing God, uh, Jesus is basically undoing all their, all their failures. And, and he is fighting Satan 
Uh, and there's a sense in which he's even undoing the sin of the garden in the sense, you know, uh, and so what, what Jesus is doing is he is showing how he is a, a true and faithful son of God. And, um, you know, what, what Satan is offering him is, is the kingdoms of this world, which the father has, has offered to him. The difference is Satan is offering him to Jesus, uh, offering these to Jesus without the cross. And so Satan is after a greater thing. If he can get Jesus to not go to the cross, then Satan is victorious. And so, um, you know, Jesus is faced with a with a real temptation. And it's also important to point out that temptation is not sin, right? Jesus never sinned. And, you know, the, the temptation to sin is not sin. Jesus is really tempted, but he doesn't give in. Instead, he recalls God's word to Satan to let him know what is only worthy of worship, and that is God himself. So exaltation was going to be Jesus's, but the temptation here was you can have the exaltation, but without the humiliation of the cross. That's right. And you, and you can have the all the kingdoms of this world. Uh, Jesus will have those, you know, because uh, upon his death and resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father, you know, he is given the name that is above every name, the Lord, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has been placed over everything in heaven and on earth. So uh, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, you will have no other gods before me. You are not to worship um, idols, graven images. So um, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that probably most of the people in our groups are not going to face the temptation uh, to worship an idol uh, that has been made from rocks or stones or, or wood uh, to represent some other false God. But the reality is idolatry is still uh, an issue and a temptation that we face. You want to talk about that a little bit, Juan? Yeah, absolutely. So if you notice in Jesus' temptation, he, and this is how Satan works, Satan doesn't offer us bad things. He doesn't get us to do bad things necessarily. You know, he he brings us through good things. And so what Jesus has offered is a good thing, the, the rule of the kingdoms of this world. And what's helpful to, to understand is, is an idol is something that we worship, yes, but a helpful way to understand it, uh, anything good can become an idol when we make something good ultimate. And so when when that thing becomes ultimate and when we pursue something above God and, and anything else, we, we are seeking satisfaction and that is ultimate, uh, we make good things into idols. What would be some examples? Yeah, so, so for example, money. Is, is not a bad thing. You know, we need money. God blesses us. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. You know, but but the reality is, is, is the when we make money ultimate and we put our hope in money, we look for money toward our security. Uh, another way of, of saying it, uh, you know, I don't use this language in the study, but it can be helpful, is, is these good things become functional saviors. And so then we think, if only I had enough money, 
then I will be saved, so to speak. If if only I had enough money, I wouldn't have these problems. If only I had enough money, I could do this. And but even sex, you know, sex is a wonderful gift from God, and uh, Satan likes to distort good things and even make thing make good things ultimate. And so, you know, there there's something uniquely um, attractive about sexual sin and temptation, um, such that. You know, God has established uh, sex is to happen within the parameters of a of a lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And um, what Satan wants to do is he offers us the temptation of, oh, you don't have to have a covenant relationship. You don't have to be married to enjoy this. And so he offers that. And, and what ends up happening is we make we make sex ultimate and we make we turn a good thing into an idol. And, and so these are just some ways, you know, authority is another uh, helpful one in our culture today. Authority is good. It is from God. God is the one who's given us authority and earthly authorities are to reflect God's authority. But when, when we have a lust for power and, and we make authority ultimate and we must have that, you know, uh, at whatever cost, then, then we would become abusive and um, we would run over people and then we'll do whatever in order to attain that authority. So th- this is how good things can become ultimate uh, and, and we can even take good things and make them into functional saviors and we're basically bowing down to them. And, and what's, what's important to understand too is these idols have high demand. So they these idols basically want us to to bring things to their altar in order to to worship them right so so think about sex for example uh it might require someone to bring their marriage to the altar to sacrifice their marriage in order to have sex outside of marriage for example an idol is anything that we place above god when you say ultimate that we say this is the most important thing in my life this is uh, this is something that's even more important to me than God in my relationship with God. Yeah. So when you put it that way, I mean, even our own kids can become idols, right? Our grandkids. Can oh, be our idols. kids and grandkids would be horrible gods, wouldn't they? Yes. <laughs> and we would never say that out loud, but by our actions, right. we are placing those things over God. And what we need to remember yeah. too, is how did Jesus combat this temptation? He just quoted, he said, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I want us to to transition to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want us to look at the passage where Jesus pulled this quote from. And in this, uh, let me just, I'm going to read about three verses here. But in this, let's see that, remember that God is the one who is really at work in our lives. Let me pick up in Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Uh, slavery. He wants us to remember he is the one at work in our lives. Yeah, yeah not, not only that, God himself already warns of the danger of, of depending upon these good gifts that he gives us, 
above himself. You know, remember where they came from. It's beautiful imagery that he he says, listen, this is what I'm giving you. I'm giving you things that you didn't have to work for. Um, You didn't have to build these uh, buildings. You didn't have to uh, cultivate these vineyards or these gardens. Everything that you have, the uh, again, the cisterns, the uh, water, I, I am providing everything for you. And with the warning, don't forget that I'm the one that gave it to you. You made this statement, one, in what you wrote on the personal study guide. When all these good things were theirs, they would face the danger of resting in these things and losing their reliance and dependence upon the one who provided them. And then you said this statement, this sentence really captures it well. Adversity doesn't threaten our walk with Christ quite like prosperity does. I think it's part of where we live here in America where uh, we we do things have have things well, certainly compared to third world countries. And we have this sense of, again, we'd never say this out loud, but I really don't need God in my life. I mean, I'm, I'm glad he's there, but I've got all these other things and we really rely on those to get us through the day, to get us through the week, to get us through our life. And God is just sort of an appendage out there. Yeah, you know, what's fascinating is we're all familiar with Philippians 4.13, right? You know, it, it's used by athletes. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. But what Paul is actually saying there is the key to contentment is the strength of the Lord in our lives. And then the point he's making is he's learned in the strength of the Lord to survive in poverty in, in when he lacks. But the key to contentment is always living in the strength of the Lord in prosperity. And we don't think about it that way, but but prosperity is a particular temptation because it it tempts us to, to be self-reliant and to not depend on God. And, you know, even, even as God was preparing Israel to go into the land, he told Moses, look, they're going to go in and this prosperity is going to take them away from me and they're going to go to other gods. And so prosperity is, is a really strong temptation that draws us to, to idols, really. And we see the antidote to that in the next verse in verse 13. Uh, and this is the verse that Jesus had quoted. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. There is a call for us to worship him and follow him, and when we do, he will do that. We will do that which pleases him. And it blesses us. Yeah. And, and again, it's just to remind the Lord is so kind to remind us. And even the Lord is so kind to give us warnings like this. But the Lord is so kind to remind Israel that, hey, don't forget me. I'm the one who gave you these things. Because the temptation for Israel is going to be to get in this land flowing with milk and honey and, and to give credit to the other gods for their blessings. And so God is just reminding them, I am the Lord. I'm the one who brought you here. I'm the one who gave you these things that you didn't have to work for. So worship me. There, there's this word here, jealous, about God being a jealous God. 
And, you know, we were always told it's you're not supposed to be jealous of other people. Yet that is a word that's used here. And you you made a reference here in the personal study guide, what you wrote, that jealousy is also a virtue when it's a sense of protection over something that is rightfully ours. And we rightfully belong to God. That's right. That's right. I mean, think about even in a marriage, you know, the problem is in in our expression of emotions, um, even anger is likewise. You know, Paul tells us that uh, be angry. He commands us to be angry, but do not sin. You know, and the idea is, you know, anger is a response to injustice. It, it's a response of that's not right or that's not fair. Jealousy is very similar. You know, it's it's a shade of that, if you will. And it would be wrong of me if some other man came to my wife, was flirting with my wife, and um, and I just said, "Oh, that's okay. It's it's no big deal." If because she and I are together in a in a covenant relationship, and so it is right for me to be jealous over her. Now, the danger with our emotions is is we become sinful very quickly, right? But but not God. You know, God is pure in his in his responses he is pure in his expressions and so one of the powerful images in scripture of god's relationship to his people is marriage you know the bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage ezekiel 16 pictures god finding israel and raising her up and betrothing himself to her hosea is a powerful image of of how god loves israel when israel doesn't love god and so Jesus is our bridegroom. And so it's this is this idea that and and James will bring it up again in chapter four, but uh it's this idea that God is our husband and he is jealous for his bride, and so he doesn't want us to go to other lovers. And so in this sense, God is jealous for his bride, and that's a good thing. What I love here is the fact that we've been talking some about self-exaltation and the danger of that. And we see here, if we will worship God and follow him, that's where our greatest joy and blessing comes from. We don't have to exalt ourselves, but if we exalt Christ and focus on him, the joy we think self-exaltation will give us, that's where we get we get it from Christ. Yeah, and here's the irony. And again, uh, I, I didn't put this in here, but... What's what's really fascinating is very much like what Satan offers Jesus, the kingdoms of this world, the very self-exaltation we're tempted to do, um, God will do for us in Jesus. When you when you look at the promises of living with Jesus, we will reign with him, right? We will be glorified and exalted in the eternal heavens. We will reign with Christ. And um, and so the very thing we're trying to do ourselves, uh, if we would humble ourselves, he will exalt us. It has been so good for us to have the opportunity to to look at uh, the temptations that Jesus faced. One, thanks for reminding us that uh, it's not a sin to experience temptation. It's what we do when we are tempted and Jesus becomes our example. He becomes the one that we look to, to see how he handled these kind of things and the things that he faced, according to the uh, writer of Hebrews, every temptation that we face, he faced 
yet without sin. So he understands, he sympathizes with us, and uh, we can go to his throne of grace uh, in our time of need. So when we face temptation, we can go to the one who was tempted just like us with assurance or knowledge that he gets us. He knows what we face, what we deal with, and he can provide us the grace and the mercy and the help that we need. Uh, so uh, this has been rich. Juan, thanks for writing all of the study, but for talking about uh, session four with us today, uh, just like the first session, it was very good, to, deep insights, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on our podcast today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. So we have been spending three weeks talking about the di different types of temptations. Let me just give you a heads up where we're going, though, is because what happens if I do give into that temptation? Well, the next session, we're going to talk about the remedy. How uh, when, when we fall into temptation, the road of forgiveness. But we hope you have a great Bible study this week, and we look forward to being with you next week.